I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Today, we are joined by Fern L. Johnson, Senior Research Scholar and Professor Emerita of English at Clark University, and Marlene G. Fine, Professor Emerita at Simmons University, the authors of Let's Talk Race, A Guide for White People, a new book that confronts why white people struggle to talk about race, why we need to own this problem, and how we can learn to do the work ourselves and stop expecting black people to do it for us. Welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank it's great you. to great to be with you. Yeah, we're really happy to be here. Excellent. Um, do you guys want to just introduce yourselves um, and sort of like what you do to sure. start to kick it off? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start because my connection to Worcester is through Clark University. Um, faculty member for twenty five years at least, <laughs> uh, a few few years longer than that. Um, in the English department, but also in the communication and culture program, which is an interdisciplinary program, um, which I was involved in for many years. And I think what I would add in relationship to um, this conversation about the book is that I was involved for many years in a project at Clark called Difficult Dialogues. And it was, it would be every year there was a new theme for what the dialogues were, but they were always controversial issues and they always involved students and faculty and lots of different ways, speakers, but also little fireside chats, so to speak, and classroom integration. So um, I really learned a lot about dialogue. You know, I am myself a sociolinguist. I study language and culture, interested in communication and ethnic and racial and gender issues in communication. So I certainly have known about the importance of deep, genuine conversation, but working with the dialogue project really ramped up my commitment to this as a particularly important mode. So I'll turn it over to Marlene. Um, I uh, taught in the Boston area for many, many years. So um, my initial work was at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where I really had a racially diverse student body that I worked with. Uh, and then I went to Emerson College for a while, not so racially diverse. Ah, are you an Emerson grad? I am. Oh, okay. I was the Dean of Graduate Studies from 95 to 99. Awesome. Uh, and uh, then I went to Simmons University and finished out the end of my career from 99 to uh, 2014. Um, as a professor in the communications department. Um, had a longstanding interest in studying race, but in the early 2000s, around 2000, 2001, I volunteered with a new project that was a, um, a, an all-volunteer project sponsored by the Office of the Mayor and then a number of groups, the NAACP, a number of synagogues, mosques, churches, other organizations, uh, and these were neighborhood dialogues on race in Boston. Uh, they eventually became known as the citywide dialogues on race and ethnicity, um, and then they were taken over by YW Boston. I used to be the YW 
SCA uh, and then became YW Boston in recent years. And um, so I facilitated dialogues initially in communities. So they would be community-based, for example, in the South End. They always involved racially diverse groups, uh, usually between 10, maybe a maximum of 20 people, a commitment to do uh, five weeks together talking with each other about race. And there was a set curriculum that we followed. And then over time, after the YW took it over, uh, we expanded beyond doing just neighborhood dialogues to also doing corporate dialogues or organizational dialogues. So we did a lot of school-based dialogues with PTOs, mm -hmm. teachers, administrators, uh, and those were very interesting. Uh, so that's kind of my experience with the uh, the, the right, dialogue right. piece of race. So that's our that's our professional profile. Now we're also the mothers of two African American sons who are now thirty and thirty two years old, and we adopted them when they were infants. So we've had quite a few years on the personal <laughs> side of learning all the things that we absolutely didn't know that we studied academically. And you know, I can't stress that enough. I mean, we thought we knew quite a bit about race and we discovered that there was a lot that we did not know. Uh, Fern expresses it in a way that I think is, is really powerful. She talks about our, um, our opportunity to witness race by being with our children in ways that we would never have seen. And also to witness it when we are not with them, but we hear what has happened to them. Can I ask what sort of a community they grew up in? Well, they grew up in, well, when they were little kids, they grew up in a suburb of Boston that I would define as pretty solidly middle class. And predominantly white, except our particular block for, for some reason was maybe the, one of the most diverse blocks in all, it was at Ashland, Massachusetts. And on our block, we had um, an interracial family. The, uh, the, the man was a black, his wife was white. They had one and then two children. Uh, we had uh, a Chinese family, uh, multi-generational, living across the street from us. We had an Egyptian family. We had uh, Catholics and Jews and Protestants. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, um, you know, it was an interest, interesting uh, yeah. mix, but not at all like Ashland as a whole. Then we moved to Carlisle, Massachusetts which is right by Concord. And that is a, a, a white community, but a very different kind of community in many ways. I think probably overall more progressive uh, community. Um, and the move there had a lot to do with education, which would be of interest to you. Um, we had so many conversations with black friends and colleagues, and you know some people we didn't know very well about where to live, and we knew we had to negotiate that one of us would 
work in was working in Boston and the other one was working in Worcester. So that was a metric. And then, of course, our kids had to go to school someplace. So it we really on balance got advice that given our family situation that we had black boys, that it was most important that they get the best education possible. And so we, I mean, we had this metric, you know, of where we had to go to work and how we had to have access to our kids and healthcare and everything that you have to have as a family. And we wound up in Carlisle. Um, initially, when we were making the decision, we were told you can do nothing greater for black children, especially black boys and to give them the very best education possible. And so while we were still living in Ashland, um, we decided uh, the boys went to Montessori school at a certain point. We didn't think Montessori really worked, uh, especially for our older son. Well, getting too old for it. Yeah. In some ways. And um, so uh, we started looking at private schools and they ended up at the Fenn School in Concord. And so we did that for a year and then we, you know, the boys were fine. We worried that they would have a hard time with the commute back and forth and they didn't care. They slept in the back of the car. Uh, we were <laughs> exhausted. Uh, and so that's, that's how we ended up in Carlisle um, because it was both a community where they could continue at the Fenn School through middle school, but we knew they would have access to a really fine public high school and that um, for high school, they would go to Concord Carlisle, which is exactly what they did. And, you know, Concord Carlisle draws, you know, from Concord and Carlisle, which are predominantly white, also has a very large Metco program. Mm -hmm. So a number of um, BIPOC students, primarily uh, Black and Hispanic, come in from the city. Um, so that's in and of itself an interesting part of a school experience. Yes. And the, the METCO program is the program that in the 1970s was like a huge problem in like the Boston suburbs, right? In the Boston area. It was kind of a result the busing, of right? the forced busing. Right. No, oh, I, I don't no. recall that METCO I was, so. but I, I don't know the history of METCO. Um, I, I've had students over the years who yeah. were um, graduates of METCO. Uh, so they lived in the city and then they ended up graduating from yeah. a variety of schools. I never heard any of them talk over the years about uh, uh, any kind of fraught history of METCO. Busing was a, a really city, fraught in issue. The city. Yeah. In the city. Yeah. Yeah. So, these, so for busing in the city, these were kids who uh, might be black and living in Roxbury and they were forced to be bused to Charlestown. So not only were they being bused in the city and uh, subjected to horrible things that happened to them, they were bused to schools that were equally bad. And it right. wasn't that right. the city right. schools were right. very it good. Integration for the sake of integrating. Med Medco is a program where students are bused out of the city, suburbs that have the programs, the suburb pays for it. Mm -hmm. Um, there was actually just a documentary on Medco recently, mm -hmm. and uh, I would say, you know, a, a mixed review um, by those who went through it. it. Seemed like the older the person was, 
the more positive they were about the experience. There's a tremendous, I'm sure you've seen uh, Eyes on the Prize from WGBH, but it's a you know beautiful, very sprawling documentary about civil rights in this country. And they have a whole episode called Keys to the Kingdom that's about the forced busing. And it draws a direct line at the end to Metco. And they say, what a wonderful program in some respects. But there was some of the negativity that kind of crossed over just in terms of um, blockbusting and white families fleeing Boston. And yeah. that's part of Metco's legacy. So it's it's a tricky one for some people. Well, and the legacy of forced busing is that the Boston schools are more segregated today. Than they were in the 70s. Isn't that insane? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But if we flash forward a little bit, what do your boys do now? Um, And and tell us about how they perceived your book. Oh, well, (laughs) you know, they went to college. They graduated from college. Um, You know, one of them got a, a master's in social work degree. They're they're both you know, gainfully employed. And um, so, you know, their lives are, are, I mean, we have our family life, but, you know, they have their own lives and their own social, um, you know, social circles. And they, they do live, um, you know, relatively close, meaning within, you know, hour and hour and 15 minutes. So, so we can see them, although the pandemic has not been too conducive to that. Um, so there's, that's kind of, you know, how they're situated at this point. And I would say in terms of their response to the book, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. so, and, and, you know, our previous book was on, uh, interracial adoption and, um, for that book all along the way, we kept sending them things to read. And, um, you know, as, as you can imagine at that point, they were, um, I think just a bit out of college and it was like, oh yeah, mom, sure. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, in college or so. in college, yeah. and um, but the response now was, "Oh, we're so proud of you, Mom. Uh, read it, uh, uh, sure, sometime." <laughs> so you know, they watched us uh, for the book launch last week, and uh, they said, "Oh, that's really great." And again, we're so proud of you. But you know, they, to get them to engage on what we've written—that's something else. They, they know what the book is about. They've lived it. Yeah. yeah. Well, they've lived it and they've been engaged with us in conversations about race since they were small children. You know, one of the things we talk about in the interracial adoption uh, book, and then we, um, you know, we would also emphasize here as you think about young kids, is that it is so important to have conversations about race that are just everyday occurrences that you just have over and over and over again. Most, you know, really eye-opening points that uh, a Black friend made to us was that in her family, they talked about race every day. And it was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, we We really had to think about that. So what did it mean if we weren't talking about race every day or just as a kind of a regular part of our conversation, what it meant usually was that the only time we were talking about race was when there was some big crisis mm-hmm. and not other things, not just saying, oh, I noticed that, you know, so-and-so is running for mayor or so-and-so's daughter, da-da, you know, whatever it happens to be, or I read this interesting thing in the newspaper or what have you. And that was really eye-opening for me. 
And you know that the thinking about talking about race every day is also something you can sort of bring up and, and see as an example of the gulf between whites and blacks. So I was doing a dialogue one time where we were processing, we were doing an exercise and then we came back as a whole group to process it. And a white woman who'd been in a group that was all white um, said as we were processing, well, I don't quite understand this exercise. You know, my group didn't talk about race at all. And so I turned to a black man in the group who'd been in a group with all blacks. And I said, did your group talk about race and talking about this exercise? And he said, yes, of course we did. He said, I wake up every morning thinking about it. And I talk about it every day because that's my life. And, and it really points to the gulf between whites and blacks. Absolutely. Um, was there a point like when your um, boys were young that you, was there like a kind of a light bulb moment where something went off and you were like, oh, like, you know, where they were noticing the difference in like how you looked or um, just a way that you like intentionally brought that to light when they were young? Actually, Marlene has a good example. About oh yeah, about, um, so um, I was uh, washing my hands and uh, washing the hands of our younger son. And uh, so, you know, I, you can imagine this, you know, standing in the bathroom, he's on his little stool He's got his hands in the water. I don't know. He might have been two and a half, three. He's pretty young. And, um, you know, and we always talked to them about how beautiful their skin was. And they had beautiful brown skin, black skin. Um, and, and we talked about black people and white people. I mean, of course, they don't understand. Right. What that <laughs> Not at that age. You know, at that age, it's color. Just color. That's yeah. all they see. Um, and, and they ask lots of questions about it. And none of them are meant to be hurtful to anyone. They're, you know, they're just curiosity. And um, he looks at our hands and he says, Mom, I, I don't understand. You know, I'm not black, I'm brown. And he said, and you're pink. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <Yeah. laughs> and, and I think our other son once made the observation that Marlene had dark, was darker colored than I am. Mm -hmm. Which is true. I mean, you know, right now we look like more two white women. You know, I have I've always had black hair, and she's always had dark hair, and she's probably a little, little bit more darkly complected than I am. But I thought that was incredible because it's not that. But they they're thinking of their family, so they know what they look like, and then they know what we look like, and. He thought she looked darker than I am. And just trying to sort of make sense of it, right? Yeah. 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 And, um, and I remember one time picking up um, our sons at daycare, and I was coming out with one of the boys, and um, so they were still daycare age. And uh, there was a, a black girl at daycare who was in the playground area, and she looked up at me and she said, Who are you? And I said, Oh, I'm Will's mom. And she said, well, you can't be. And I said, why not? And she said, you're white. She was old. She obviously was you know, yeah. like four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And and I looked at her and I thought, hmm, how do I respond to that? And I just looked at her and I said, oh, he's adopted. And she said, oh, okay. Yeah. 
again, it's just pure curiosity. I know, children too, like the way that they'll accept things sometimes. It's like, oh, right, absolutely. I, I think that's a great segue to one of the essential questions of your book is like, why are white people so afraid to talk about race? And for me, you know, I've been doing a lot of self-reflection, particularly over the last year. And I think I sometimes am afraid to say the wrong thing or say something offensive. Um, so what was your, your finding? Why are white people so afraid to talk about race? Yeah, Sarah, I think you've really hit on it. I mean, it, it, it is often being concerned that you're going to say the wrong thing, being hesitant, uh, being concerned that you might say something that will sound like it's racist, even though you don't intend it to be that way. And th that just stops conversation. And that that's one of the big problems. I mean, we've heard many Black people tell us, you know, friends, colleagues, that it's very frustrating to them that, you know, white people just don't talk about race or they will def deflect to some other topic, you know, to either try to kind of ingratiate themselves and say, you know, well, I've had not the same, but similar experience, or that relates to something else that I'm thinking of. So I think there's just a lot of hesitancy uh, for many people, you know, guilt, uh, maybe fear. Yeah, and I think related to those things, there's also a fear on the part of whites of conflict, you know, of not wanting mm -hmm. to create conflict. We don't like conflict. Um, and uh, Blacks are much more comfortable with conflict, with heightened emotions. Um, it's much more part of, um, and I'm generalizing now, but it's much more part of African-American culture. And again, as I generalize about white culture, mainstream white culture, we like things to be even, you know? So we wanna sort of sweep things under the surface and keep the surface even. And so that fear, I might say something wrong, I might start an argument, um, and I don't want to be involved in that. Yeah, I saw a very interesting Twitter thread one time that was turned out to be an ongoing conversation where um, it was started by a Black person who said there are a lot of white people, and particularly white women, who don't engage in real talk was like what it was. And so and there was all these responses from black people and white people sort of just like attesting to like their own experiences and observation. And a lot of white women were like, yeah, like if I start something at like, you know, family dinner, you you just then try to hide it. Right. And I think that's um you talk about like sort of in a mainstream white culture. It reminds me of sort of like a waspy kind of like just leave it alone. Yeah, like that's not polite. Yes. Yeah. 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 This, this yeah. notion of, of politeness, particularly if you're talking with people who aren't intimate friends, you know, with whom you've had a long history. Although even in cases like that, I mean, we have had feedback from um, Black uh, women, I'm thinking of now, who have said that even some of the, their very good white friends just don't talk with them about race. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of other things in common. So maybe their kids in, in school and what's going on and their marriages and what, you know, whatever it might be, but they're not talking about race. I think I was, I felt kind of humiliated last year after the murder of Breonna Taylor. 
uh, one of my oldest, dearest friends is a black woman, and we never had really delved into the topic of race, at least not below the surface. And so I was asking her all these questions, and she said, look, I love you, Sarah, and I'll have this conversation with you, but don't expect all your black friends to do this emotional labor. And that really meant a lot to me. So I was wondering if you could talk about racial fatigue um, and whose responsibility is it is to address these problems, especially in the workplace. And that's one of the reasons we wrote the book. So in our own work doing uh, teaching and then doing workshops uh, and leading dialogues on race, we had noticed how reluctant whites were to talk about it. And then our black friends were saying, you know, they were so frustrated by the fact that whites wouldn't talk about race. But on the other hand, they were so tired of doing the work, you know, of doing all the heavy lifting of teaching white people. And it's like, why can't you learn yourselves? And we thought, here we are, we're perfectly situated in terms of our academic expertise and then our expertise, what we learned personally over the years about race through raising our children. We thought that if we told our story and we walked white people through learning some of the issues, not all of them, just some of them, and told them how important it was to do their own work, uh, that maybe they could understand and take it in from us because we'd be the first to admit we don't know it all. We don't have all the answers right. and we're always learning all the time. And we make mistakes all the time. We're, writing the, the book was such a learning experience for each of us separately, and then when we would talk, um, you know, I would be doing research or Marlene would be doing research background for something, and I'd be like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know X, or I didn't realize historically that this is actually what happened. Um, I didn't really understand the significance of Juneteenth. You know, I mean, I knew what it was, Mm-hmm. But I just that was I ne- never was taught that, and I just didn't ask about it, nor did I seek out information. And you know, we can't all be historians. I mean, we, we we don't know everything, and nobody can do that. But you know, one of the fundamental blockages for white people is understanding or not understanding that what happened during slavery and to the enslaved, taking that forward all the way through to to the current time, it is the story. And what is today has got a background that made a difference. And this is why it is today, the way it is. And we're not taught that. I don't think, I don't know, you have a better sense obviously than we do of what, you know, how much time you have in the, in, the, in class to teach students. But I hadn't heard of Juneteenth until I was 22. Yeah, 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 I was older. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I wanted to add something in terms of your question about the workplace, um, because I, I would separate out the responsibility that whites have to learn more, to know more, so that you come into a conversation and you simply are more knowledgeable and more able to have the conversation and more appreciative of aspects of African-American culture, aspects of African-American life, that you 
understand that as white people, we have a race, all of that. Um, I think that's really important. In the workplace, there is a tendency for whites to, when they are willing to say, hey, we need to do something in the workplace about creating a more welcoming environment or diversifying the workforce or whatever. There's a tendency for whites to say, okay, let's get together and talk about it and come up with a solution. Um, forgetting that blacks and other BIPOC need to be invited to the table for the conversation. You know, that it, it, it's our responsibility to know more and be more prepared in the conversations. It's not our responsibility to talk for, to speak for people of color. Because it's their table as much as it's our table. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, this idea that you welcome people in is a kind of an odd idea because it suggests that they're guests. Right. And that, yeah. and I mean, if you really think about what that means, and I've actually heard particularly one black friend who I've known for decades say that over and over again, if she hears one more person <laughs> say that she's welcome to be there, a white, white person, because she knows what it means. Like she might just, just haul off and. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think on I think on the flip side of that too, a lot of especially I think like in uh, corporate in the corporate world right now, there's this big effort to install like diversity and inclusion officers and diversity and inclusion departments, and then what happens is that they they will hire a black person or a, a a person you know a different of a different color, and then that work falls on them, and they're like, well, we did it, we have diversity and inclusion. And, and universities as well. Right. And those people end up totally burnt out, right, in academia as well. Absolutely. And you know that that's not a recent phenomenon. I wrote a book <laughs> about multi building multicultural organizations back um, in the 1990s, began my work uh, doing my research in the 80s. And um, the same thing was happening because diversity was a big topic until um, internationalism and globalism became the hot topics. So when those took over, we sort of lost diversity. But for a few brief years in the US, we did talk about diversity and that's exactly what would happen. You'd have, you'd hire a diversity officer and you'd say, okay, we're gonna hire people of color and you might bring in one person or two people. Um, and of course you did nothing to change the environment, to create a, a warm, open environment that made everyone feel as if they were a part of things. Um, you expected people who came into your organization to just conform to the old rules. Um, and, you know, these efforts were in most cases not successful. And then as other kinds of issues like globalism and then later the recession came, they just got lost. Um, one thing that you had mentioned just in terms of like cultural competency and talking about multiculturalism in the workplace was that you guys pinpointed certain elements of African-American culture that are often misinterpreted by white people. And I was curious if you could just like rattle off a few of those things um, so we could see if any of them resonate with us. Yeah. So yeah, this is interesting. We thought a lot about writing that chapter and whether we should have that chapter or not. And then we thought, well, yeah, we're hearing these things all the time from people and on, on both sides, we're hearing them from white people who make a comment about something um, or we're hearing them from um, blacks who are 
kind of upset that you know white people thought X or Y about something. So we tried to focus on those, we'll call them patterns, characteristics, practices that some, certainly not all African-Americans um, would, would practice and that we've heard many whites make comments about. And I'll, you know, I'll start with one because you'll certainly know about it, which is African-American English. You know, that this idea that somehow this form of language, and it's more than one form, but, but patterns of language that are associated with African-Americans are denigrated, you know, as improper, imperfect, incorrect, inaccurate. I mean, you can go on and on and on about this. And, you know, there's, there's vast linguistic research over, you know, 50, 60 years. And this is something that I, I study. So I'm very passionate about it, um, which absolutely, absolutely debunks any of those ideas um, that, you know, there are many things about African-American language that are not only more complex than what we think of as, you know, standard or general American English. There are also larger issues that are culturally embedded. You know, the, important, the importance of the word, you know, the importance of language. I mean, you know, it, your word is your bond, which is a very old, you know, African-American words to live by. Michelle, Michelle Obama used that term. And it's very powerful. And, you know, the poetics and the spontaneity and the ability to, to verbally create. And, the, you know, this is not well understood by whites, you know, that it's somehow you just didn't learn your English, right? You know, or you don't know how to speak in a particular situation. So we wrote about that and used some examples. And um, that was one area. Um, um, we talk about issues related to clothing, dress, uh, to hair, hair. Uh, things that uh, most whites don't understand. Social networks, which right. again, um, most whites don't understand. The fraternity and the sorority are very important in African-American culture and not as something that you do while you're in college, but that you spend your whole life being part of and connected to these people. And the role of the fraternity, the sorority, is both in terms of supporting the individual, but also they have goals about bettering African-American right. communities. Right. That's important. And you see the social networking in, in the political sphere. We talk about churches. But I, I want to give you some examples that uh, came up yesterday. So oh, yes. we, yeah. were, we were watching CBS uh, this morning after uh, the Chauvin trial, and Gail King was in Minneapolis. And so she did a series of interviews. So um, uh, she interviewed um, a man who testified at the trial, an elderly man who works in a car wash. A black man. A black man. And so she interviews him. He is seated, works in a car wash. He is in a beautiful, bright, bright blue suit. And he has 
pure white eyeglasses on. So the frames are all white. So he is, you know, sitting there an absolute vision. And Gail interviews him. And when the interview is over, she turns to him and smile and she says, you look dapper today. And I was telling a black friend about it. And she said, yeah, imagine a white journalist saying that because a white journalist wouldn't understand that, in fact, he does look dapper. And that is so important in the African-American community. Uh, then uh, a few minutes later, she was interviewing Ben Crone, the lawyer uh, for the Floyd family and um, George Floyd's uh, brother, uh, uh, Felonius. So um, Felonius, uh, well, first Ben Crump. So Ben Crump is talking to Gail King and he says, yes, ma'am, Gail King. Yes, ma'am, because the sign of respect through language is so important, not because it's an old fashioned expression, mm -hmm. but it represents something important. While we were writing this book, something happened. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was about using these yes ma'am forms between a student and a teacher and calling a teacher ma'am. And I was just recounting this. It was not any big thing to a white friend of mine. And she said, oh, you know, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think students would say that anymore. And I said, yes, they would. <laughs> and, you know, it's not that every African-American child right. would right. say ma'am you know, or sir to a teacher, but a, a, a number of them would. Um, Absolutely. And they all say, miss, hello, miss, miss, missus, you know, and I've had colleagues who say, that's so disrespectful. They don't even know my name. And I'm like, no, 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 that's like a, you know, they're showing you respect by saying, excuse me, miss. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I don't know what, what your experience was, but, you know, there was always this fine line about whether your students, you know, you're a professor and, and your students and who was going to call you by your first name. And if you had to invite them to call you by the first name and whether somebody called you by the first name and I'm like, well, who does he think he is? You know, like, but I rarely, I can't even think of a black student who free, freely called me by my first name. I just can't. I yeah, yeah. No, I can't either. And and the, the sign of respect is so important. Uh, but I wanted to share with you what Felonius uh, yeah. uh, said. So first of all, he was dressed in this stunning green plaid suit with a, a gold vest that matched uh, some of the gold in the plaid. And, um, and the tie. And the tie. And, you know, so he again was looking very dapper. And at some point, he's asked a question about now being a, a member of a family of a slain Black man. And he says, it's a fraternity I didn't ask to be in. And the use of ask for asked is a deep, deeply rooted part of African-American expression, which most white people simply dismiss as, oh, they don't know how to say the word properly. It's actually goes all the way, you know, back to Shakespeare. So, <laughs> um, one of my favorite courses I ever took as an undergraduate was with a professor named Kristen Turner, and it was all about code switching. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a fantastic study of, you know, 
that AAE, African American English, follows okay. all these rules. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such a complex system. It's yes, yes, is so complicated. Right. And yeah, you can, much, much more complicated than uh, standard white English. Yeah. yeah. And you can see that in the way that white people then take it and misuse it. Mm-hmm. Like they'll take whatever they hear that sounds cool. Right. And then like it will just be like it becomes totally bastardized essentially by the meaning right. that white people give it. And I wonder I always think, too, when I hear um, those like that. Uh, the politeness, right? The like, ma'am, sir. And does that come from a place where like, are like, especially like I think of like black boys and you guys can speak to this, I think better than I could. But does that come from a place where you say like, it's that respectability idea where like, you're less likely to find yourself in a situation you don't want to be in if you act the right way, right? Or it's quote unquote, the right way. You know, I think it's, I think it's both. I think it, there, there is a, a well of respect. Yes, absolutely. For, for uh, older people, for people who have you know accomplished things, for older family members, for teachers, for um, you know members of the clergy. I mean, a, a whole range of um, people. So, so there is that, but there also is a set of norms about how to conduct yourself so that you will be as safe as possible. Yeah. You know, that, for example, is part of what the talk is all about. It's not just a, when you have the talk with your kids, I mean, we had it. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a painful uh, experience to have to have, um, but it's not just about a warning. It's about what is it that you should do if you are stopped, if you are surveilled, how to handle yourself. Um, so that's the other side that I think you're, you're talking yes. about. Yeah. And the idea that like, if you're getting pulled over for something routine, I mean, like I've been pulled over and I get nervous just cause like yes. you do. Yeah. And so then yeah. having to then like check in in your mind and say, okay, here are the things that I have to do. Like, I wouldn't think to do that. Cause I'm right. just like, hi. Right, and, so and the you're general already nervous. fear of a history of police violence <laughs> right. that lives in your head. One, one yeah. example, you know, I've I've been pulled over and I've gotten tickets, you know, but you know, I mean, you know, the person blows, <laughs> and but the example is, I know that one time when I was pulled over, probably the most recent time when I was pulled over, I took my seatbelt, I you know, I pulled over the road, I took my seatbelt off, and I immediately reached over to the glove box to pull out all my registration because I knew I would need it. Um, one of our sons was cited for failure to wear his seatbelt because when he was pulled over, he took off his seatbelt, he reached over to get his registration, and then the officer, along with some other things, told him that um, it was illegal to be in his car without a seatbelt on, something like that. But he cited him for failure to wear a seatbelt because he wasn't wearing it. In an unmoving vehicle. When he, hand, when he handed it. Yeah, no, yeah. No, the, the, the vehicle was unmoving. He had pulled over to oh, the, he side. the side. He'd the already been talking to the police officer. And the right. police officer said, I want to see your registration. He took the seatbelt off. He leaned over and got his registration. And the officer cited him for being in the car without a seatbelt. Hmm. 
Oh which of course is not, <laughs> yeah, not what he pulled them over. <laughs> right. But you know, it's it, so. I mean, these little rules, like you know, right. keep, keep your tone of voice down. Yep. Don't talk too loudly. You know, yes, sir. You know, is there a problem? Uh, you know. It's hard to do that when you're already when you feel a little bit anxious. Yes, like, yes, 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 yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. As two responsible white female authors, I was talking to Molly and I was like, I wonder, you know, if they turn uh, a large profit from this book, right? Like, we both had spent some time reading White Fragility. um, And, you know, what do you do? Are you allowed to make money off this subject as white women? And I don't know if you want to talk about the author at all of White Fragility. Right. Or just, and I had even read like some critiques of white fragility that bring into the picture of like how some things can be oversimplified or even condescending to black people. Right. Um, and so then I just wanted to know like how you would differentiate your work from that, which was so wildly popular last year. Two separate questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the author now is on a speaking tour, making a lot of money. That's kind of why we had both had this conversation. She's like making $50,000 to talk at universities. We don't anticipate. (laughs) (laughs) We've already said to each other, we're retired. We don't like working. Well, we hope we break break (laughs) even. even, We're just happy to send it out. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, So there is, but just about the the money, Um, you know, we're, we're aware this critique mm-hmm. of her. I have no, I don't know her. I know the book. Mm-hmm. I think the book speaks to some people. And if it does, that's fine. I think, you know, whatever helps people. Um, but I but I don't know how she spends her money. I mean she's yeah. an anti yeah. she's an anti-racist educator and you know she has been for her whole career. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, doing workshops and what have you. So, you know, I'm sure she's not, you know, well, I'm not sure of anything because I don't know her. No, I don't know her. But I don't have any reason to think that I know that she's making all this money. She might be donating it to good friends. I think it's more the optics of it, right? Where it's like, and you spoke earlier where you say, where you were talking about how your black friend said, I don't want to be like welcomed to the table. I know it's my table. And so it almost feels like, and I think you're right that the book does speak to certain people, but I think it also, at the same time, it looks a little bit like she's taking up that space, right? Which can be tricky. Well, so I'd say a couple of things about that. One is that um, we differ from D'Angelo because our concern, our interest was always in, in making sure and kind of inviting white people to have a conversation about Invitational. race. Invitational. And, and we see her book as a kind of shaming book, you know, where let's make white people feel bad, especially progressive white people. And, and we don't see the point of that. Um, you know, you don't want to shut down the conversation, you want to open up the conversation. Uh, the second point I would make is that our book really is for white people. You know, we, we're not asking and we don't expect black people uh, to buy this book. Um, as one of the uh, African-American women who reviewed the book said, she knows what's in it. <laughs> you know, she, she doesn't need it, but she thinks it's really good that some whites are stepping up and providing a perspective that's important for white people. Um, and so our, you know, our hope is that this book will become a tool, a mm. useful tool to help white people 
get involved in conversations with race, with each other, mm -hmm. and then eventually across race with black people. Mm -hmm. um, because real social change only happens when we thoroughly talk about issues and when we develop the kind of trust in each other and the empathy for each other that really allows us to work together over the long term. Um, so, so in that sense, the purpose of our book is very applied. Yes. You use this book. There are conversational prompts to get you started, you know, with a four people, three people, 10 people, whatever it would be, people of your own race, across race, but to get you started because there are so many blockages, you know, as we've already talked about, to just saying something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the conversation might go someplace else. You might decide um, that you're going to, you know, leave that topic behind and take up another one because it, it came up when you were having this conversation. It might be awkward. It might be difficult. It might feel easier for some people, depending on what happens. It could be a lot of different things, but we want people to know that all of those possibilities are okay. And we have to, we have to talk. Yes. Um, one of the things you mentioned, which I actually was curious about, were prompts in the book. Um, are those all conversational? Are some of them like self-reflective? Yeah, so we have um, uh, personal prompts in which we ask people to, you know, think about, for example, think about the stereotypes you have of Black people, write them all down, and then say to yourself, where did I learn them? Did I learn these from my parents? Did I learn them from kids at school? Did I learn them in school, in classes? Uh, did I learn them in movies I saw? in uh, television shows I watched, but really think about where you learned all of these kinds of things. And then to take that information after you've self-reflected on it and come into a conversation with some other white people and share your responses and try to talk about you know, your learning. What's the foundation of the stereotypes you hold about black people? So those are, you know, that, that's kind of the relationship of the two. So each chapter, depending on what the chapter's focus is, has in it conversational prompts and also these more personal prompts that relate in some way to the material that's there. And then, you know, we, we conclude all but two of the chapters, the first two. We right. conclude, yes, we've read this book a hundred times. <laughs> no, actually all of the chapters except First Except one. for the first chapter, we end with, um, you know, moving the conversation forward and some very basic do's and don'ts, which, you know, might look like, oh, oh, oh you know, <laughs> uh, but they're really just extracted from what's in the chapter. Uh, some very basic things to just to always remember. So, you know, don't ever say, oh, I don't see color <laughs> or race isn't important to me. Because this is very offensive to uh, most Black people and most BIPOC people, you know, mm -hmm. who, who hear this. Sure. Um, so, you know, but, but, and do listen, do hold your, you know, hold your idea, you know, try to keep it out of your brain for a while and listen to somebody 
So these are very basic reminders. Mm -hmm. And um, we have in the last chapter, in addition to the do's and don'ts for moving the conversation forward, um, we have a list of kind of rules of engagement or guidelines for engagement, uh, which are not meant to be hard and fast. But when you are in conversation with others, here are some things to think about and to kind of set as guidelines for how you you all agree to this. And these are the ways in which you will proceed. You know, no shaming of other people, uh, be present, be listening, things like that. And we draw a lot of those from oh, various sources. Yeah. They're not I, unique to us. I always think it's fascinating that some of the most constructive dialogue rules for having conversations about race come from Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And then you hear, you know, somebody ranting and raving about this militant, you know, rebel group that's going to destroy our civilization. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's, it's so jarring, you know, to, to actually look at the resources that, you know, BLM provides yeah. to move racial justice forward. And then the misperceptions. I mean, that's that's a good conversation prompt. Right. Well, you know, and have people go look go look at the website for Black Lives. We don't have this in the book, so but go look at the website for Black yeah, Lives website. Matter. The no, the website is, but we don't have a conversational prompt that says oh, everybody should go right. look at the website for Black Lives Matter right. and then come back and talk about you know what this what right. this is. But if you go to it and you look at their practices you know how should you proceed in a conversation you start with lead with love so you know it's really hard to see yeah. this you know <laughs> militant organization that is going to destroy so it becomes like what you know versus what you thought you know right and then what you Absolutely. learn it's all education yeah and one of the most hopeful parts of my career as an English teacher was in the last few years there's been a shift toward social emotional learning and also the speaking and listening standards and so we're yeah, teaching kids absolutely. to have conversations and it's a beautiful thing and the things that they come out with too are so much more intellectually stimulating than anything as a 34 year old woman I could think up myself you know I'm like Wow, <laughs> that 13-year-old just handed it to me. <laughs> That's such a great example because we are so quick um, in this society to be talking about debate rather than conversation. And so it's really about proving our point. And we do that with our students. I think, you know, we teach them to have the thesis statement and support the thesis statement. So um, we're not used to thinking about, hey, you know, I have ideas. You have ideas, they're different. And, you know, maybe we won't come to agreement, but we can hold on to different ideas simultaneously. We all have our own truths um, and different things can be true at the same time. Um, but that's very hard for us to accept. The highest order of thinking, right? Where we could all have a different answer and we can all be right. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you both. Yes. Where can we get your book? Oh, and most anywhere. I, I, I wonder if, uh, yeah, most anywhere. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's available on I was just going to say, we try to promote independent booksellers. So, um, so bookshop.org represents independent uh, booksellers, and it's available there. 
And Chatnick um, probably has it. Chatnick, um, I think, does have it. Uh, Brookline Booksmith has it in town. And then um, our our uh, PCP, primary care physician, wrote that uh, she and her husband were down in Connecticut and walked into an independent bookstore and there was our book. So awesome. Um, yeah, that's great. Our local independent bookstore is called Bedlam Book Company, and they allow you to like order. So maybe we can place a little order too for yeah. our copies because a lot of their stuff is used or secondhand, but they do bring in new stuff too. Well, Lynn said she already saw used <laughs> copies of our book for sale, and said, "How did? They, how could they already have it?" <laughs> It's a good sign. Someone tore right through it, you know? Yeah, it's only been out for six days. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, and I hope you guys have a wonderful afternoon. Yes, we'll have you. to, we'll send yeah. you the episode once it goes up. I think next Wednesday morning. Terrific. Okay. Well, it was great to talk with you. It was and just delightful. Yeah, yeah, it was delightful. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and good luck. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, for invite, thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>